Today's scripture reading is Amos 3, 1 through 15. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1954, Dr. Martin Luther King moved to Montgomery, Alabama to pastor Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And Dexter Avenue Baptist Church offered Dr. King a great salary, a comfortable parsonage, and the highly educated congregation really aligned with his intellectual sensibilities. And at this time, Dr. King cared about justice, but he was interested in a safe way, an indirect way, of pursuing justice. Civil rights activism, nonviolent direct action, these things were, were not really on his mind and his congregation didn't expect this of their minister. Now, of course, the members of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church hoped for a day that would be free of the indignities and the injustices of Jim Crow laws. But this congregation wasn't making any plans to disrupt the status quo in ways that would be costly and sacrificial. 
However, the day after Rosa Parks refused to get up from her seat at the front of the bus, one of Dr. King's friends, uh, Ralph Abernathy, came to talk him into leading a local movement for justice that would ultimately leave him with a global reputation for doing justice. I believe that every one of us would say that we care about justice, but most of us are interested in a safer way, an indirect way of pursuing justice that actually waters it down. Now, of course, as Christians, we hope for a day that will be free of injustices, whether those injustices are found in policing or, or criminal justice or housing or education. However, we often fail to make plans to disrupt the status quo in ways that will prove costly and sacrificial and frankly, Christ-like. And it's also the case that our conception of justice is often more deeply marked by American culture than by scripture. There is lots of literature out there about the different versions of what constitutes justice. In fact, one popular philosophical work uh, asks the question, who's justice? That's why it's important that for the next few weeks, the prophet Amos uh, comes alongside us as a friend who wants to talk us into participating in God's movement for justice, according to God's conception of justice. And it, it, it just might help us to recover the witness that we have surrendered through our safetyism and our indirection. And, and from our, our lack of vision as it relates to the relationship between justice and Christ-likeness, Christian faithfulness. I'm sure that most of you are aware that people in our country and around the globe are talking about justice. But I want to make one thing clear up front for the Church of Jesus Christ. An open mouth with a closed Bible is no help to the cause of true justice in the world. You could take it a step further and say an open Twitter and a closed Bible will not be of any real help in the advance of true justice in the world either. In other words, God has spoken. His word is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet, particularly on this theme of justice. Nobody knows more about justice than the architect of justice. And nobody cares more about justice than the God who created the world to flourish in justice. So let's turn to our passage for today and hear from the just God who has just the word that we need to hear. And we're going to approach this text through two points. We're going to look at confronting the failure of love and confronting the failure of witness. So let's look at our first point, confronting the failure of love. Now, if you look at verses 1 through 2, uh, it, we begin into our passage, uh, and we get uh, the prophet being the mouthpiece of the Lord, and he's going to drive in on the devastating irony of the injustice perpetuated by his community. 
The Lord is speaking through his prophet and he's driving in on this devastating irony perpetuated by his community. One of the central aspects of biblical justice is a recognition of the royal dignity of fellow image bearers and treating them in accord with that royal dignity as under the very gaze of the Lord. Israel's society was to be one in which each member saw royal dignity in the other, and they treated one another in such a way that it was clear that they understood that the Lord was witnessing their social life and holding them accountable for treating one another in accord with that dignity. That has been a consistent theme of understanding biblical justice. Recognize the royal dignity in your neighbor and understand that God is witnessing the way that you're dealing with the other and holding you accountable for treating his image bearers with the appropriate dignity that he invested in them. So right up front in our text, the Lord grounds his expectations of his people in his great redemptive acts in the Exodus. And the Lord in the Exodus, you have to see, you have to appreciate, the Lord gave justice to an oppressed Israel. In other words, he saw the royal dignity that he invested in them and he raised them up to be his treasured people in alignment with their royal dignity. That's, that's what we see as an important aspect of justice that frankly is often uh, underappreciated or, or, or just plain ignored by a lot of American churches. We have a, a, a very narrow view of justice and we ignore a lot of the, the broader aspects of justice, which in our language, constitutes righteousness. Justice and righteousness are part of the same uh, linguistic family. And so a lot of times we're not sure exactly what's the best translation, whether justice or righteousness, but that righteousness aspect, being faithful in the context of a relationship is often lost for us in our own American Christianity. The Lord, however, shows his people, what it looks like to do justice. They were the beneficiaries of his just action on their behalf when they were in the bondage of Egypt. And because he did this for them, the result was that the Lord had a clear covenantal expectation for them to go and do likewise to their neighbors and to build this kind of life-affirming culture, to foster this kind of common good society because the people that they lived in social networks with were little glimpses of the divine dignity and royal stature of the Lord who rescued them. That is ultimately the, the vision that God had for his people. The Lord has this covenantal expectation for his people to do this. But they turned to commit greater injustices than the nations that oppressed them. They became like the, the, the worst expressions of the people who oppressed them. They became what they originally hated. And this is why the Lord says, I have a word to speak 
against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, I've often heard people say something like this. The God of the Old Testament seems so angry, but the God of the New Testament seems more loving and, and kind. And I prefer the New Testament version of God. Have you ever heard something like this? Maybe you heard it back in college when you took a religious studies course. Maybe you've heard it from friends before who've tried to make an attempt at reading the Bible. Maybe you've actually said this yourself. Here's the deal. If you've ever wondered why the God of the Old Testament prophets seems so angry, it's because he is. He is angry because he is love. And the God who is love is furious about the way that his beloved have betrayed his redeeming love by oppressing the neighbors that they should have been blessing. He is furious when the royal dignity of his image bearers is disregarded and offended. And they thought that a thin veneer of piety could cover over this gross evil and injustice and make them square with the Lord of love and justice. Imagine the audacity of it. They thought that they could hide this evil, these evil actions that sprang from evil hearts by doing a little performative spirituality in order to placate God. And this is why the Lord says, I must roar through my prophets. I want to ask you to not stop with the idea that the God of the Old Testament prophets seems angry. I want to encourage you to go further and know why he is angry. And if you look at why he is angry, you will see that the answer is because he is love. And love stands against, speaks against, and fights against injustice. Think about this. It is love that makes a mother angry at the abuse of her child and that leads her to do everything in her power to stop that abuse. It's love that makes a brother furious at the exploitation of his sister and leads him to do everything in his power to stop that exploitation. It's love that compels these kinds of situations to be rectified by those who love those who are hurting. Love compels them to do everything in their power to address the evil. Do you understand that we must throw off this Americanized Hallmark card version of love that's all sappy and saccharine and has no fight to it? You will see in the, the example of God that love must protest indignities and resist inequity and cry out against brutality. Love is the midwife that brings true justice into the world through human labor pains. Love nourishes and sustains true justice. Love laments injustice and refuses to adjust to injustice and will not excuse injustice. It is disordered love that is the source of injustice. I want you to think about that. Think about the way that the disordering of our loves is the source 
of injustice, love of money over love for the marginalized, love of power over love of people, love of self over love of neighbor, love of status quo over love for Imago Day. If you would be just, you must attend to your loves. And if you would have the discernment and the wisdom to identify injustice where it's hiding in plain sight, you must attend to your loves. You will never sort out the justice issues if you don't first sort out the love issue. For our context, it is only by attending to your loves that you will be able to identify when the American justice system is out of accord with biblical justice. It takes wisdom and love in order to discern between the two. In verses three through six, we have a statement of a series of rhetorical questions that expect the answer, no. And these rhetorical questions lead us to the punchline that follows in verses seven and eight. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Now, the prophets, you have to understand, were kind of like preachers in this time period. In fact, they had prophetic guilds where prophets would learn the craft as they awaited the, the word of the Lord. They, they waited to hear the word of the Lord, but there were guilds of prophets, schools of prophets. And what the people would often do was celebrate the prophets who told them good news that they wanted to hear, and they would persecute the preachers who told them bad news that they didn't want to hear, even if that bad news was a merciful warning of their need to repent that came directly from the Lord. You see, there is this historic picture that we see developing in the prophets where those who were speaking the most truth to God's people were those who were most reviled. They were the people who were most rejected because the people just wanted someone to tell them what they wanted to hear. They wanted someone to tell them that what they were doing was, was all right. They were already in good shape, that their actions were already perfectly aligned with the will of God, and there was nothing to see here. But here's the deal. The times are no different now, friends. It's not hard to go out and find a popular preacher or a news article that lines up with what you already believe, that confirms your bias. This is what the Apostle Paul called itching ears. Wanting people to tell you what you want to hear. But you and I must ask the hard questions of ourselves. Am I just looking for a way to defend the status quo because it happens to be working out for me and mine? Is it possible that I am supporting a status quo that God is judging? Is my concern for truth, even if that truth might turn my world right side up in a most frightening way, is my concern for truth? Am I engaging this material 
with the concerns of my own tribe in my ear? Or am I engaging this material with the concerns of my neighbor and the call of my Savior in my ear? If I had to trade places with my neighbor, how would that change what I am doing and how I'm thinking right now about the cries for justice? Is it possible that I would see things in a very different light? Is it possible that a new tenderness would arise within me? Is it possible that I am calloused to the cries of those who are suffering because I am satisfied with my relative privileged situation in life? These are the hard questions that the biblical text invites us to ask of ourselves. And I want to say something that's really important. It's thorough, thoroughly biblical. And everyone needs to hear this. All of us. Our first instinct upon hearing the prophetic word should not be self-defense, but self-abasement. Because we have much to learn about the love and justice of God. We have much to learn. Our first response should not be self-defense. It should be self-abasement. When God confronts, we must concede. He confronts his people on their failure to love because it yields a failure of witness, among other things, which leads us to our second point, confronting the failure of witness. In verse 9, the Lord calls the nations to witness the injustice of his own people. Now, this is more irony, in case you haven't noticed. Because the, the nations were supposed to receive testimony to the faithfulness of God from his people. But God's people are guilty of bearing false witness against him through their acts of injustice and their hearts of indifference. Our neighbors are crying out for justice, particularly our black and brown neighbors not to mention the rise in anti-Asian sentiment that is taking place in this country. And many people are wondering, what does God have to say about all this? And you and I, as God's people, need to make sure that we have a faithful answer from the scriptures. One of the, the greatest wounds that you could ever inflict upon a person is to lead them to believe that God has nothing to say about their suffering. To lead them to believe that God has nothing to say about their anguish and their predicaments and their longings for wholeness. That's one of the worst wounds you could lay upon a person, and it's one of the greatest betrayals of our responsibility as God's people in the world. Because God has spoken. God has something to say to those who suffer. God has something to say to those who are afflicted and oppressed. God has spoken. And the church is to advance justice broadly and deeply in society. And therein lies an incredible opportunity. An incredible opportunity and an incredibly important dynamic of our witness in the world. Do you understand that witness has to be more than what we've made it out to be in American Christianity? 
That's, that's really important. We're going to come back to that. But let me say a word about the language of oppressed. I think in a lot of American minds, that's the language of Marxism. That's, the, that's a language that belongs to an atheistic, uh, godless philosophy, and we must abandon that language. Or anyone who uses that language is suspect. And, and I, I, want, I want to address that right now. The Hebrew word translated oppressed could also be translated as those wronged, the extorted, the abused, the crushed, the exploited. Oppressed is a fine translation of the Hebrew word lying behind in the biblical text. But if you want to fill that out, it, 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 it translates in all these other ways as well. And the simple fact is that love cannot abide this kind of treatment of royal image bearers who are stamped with nothing less than divine dignity. Nothing commends the truth of the Christian faith more than a community that is heaven-bent on welcoming Christ and his royal image bearers. Listen, this is what American Christians need to understand. If the church is giving out tracts, but has lost track of the poor and marginalized, we have compromised our witness. If the church is preaching to people on the street, but not lifting up people who've been sleeping on the street, we have compromised our witness. If the church is preaching a God who takes saving initiative toward us, but we passively wait for the afflicted to find us, we have compromised our witness. The gospel of grace is not an anesthetic to simply numb the pain of your failure to do justice and righteousness. It is an antiseptic that kills the infection that keeps you from the work. And we can never safely ignore doing justice. Never. It is never safe to ignore it. It's never safe to downplay it. It's never safe to get tired of it. And we must exercise some self-interrogation if we have found our place, ourselves in a place where we, where we don't really feel a sensitivity to cries for justice anymore. We must exercise a self-suspicion. If we, if we ever wind up in the place where we think that justice, concern for justice, is for the, the, the secular liberal people. That is the most self-indicting statement you could ever make. To suggest that those who believe in historic Christianity are not supposed to be the kind of people who care so much about justice. That is one of the greatest affronts to biblical, historic, orthodox Christianity that you could ever make. And one of the greatest ways to undermine God's design for our witness in the world. But even in the midst of these stern words of rebuke, we find good news. If you look at verse 12, it says, Thus says the Lord, As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued. In other words, God is going to certainly come to 
sift through the chaff, but there will be a remnant. There will be a holy seed when he is finished with his work of judgment, when he is finished with his work of discipline, when he is finished with his holy work of bringing his, his crushing truth to his people. It, these are equivalent to the, the, the wounds of a friend that are faithful. The great heavenly friend, God Almighty, brings the words that wound to his people, but only so that he can heal and raise up a renewed people that will be faithful and responsive to his original design as he gave it to his people back in the very beginning of the story. A remnant, verse 12 tells us, will be saved. And on this side of the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session of Jesus Christ, we can see that the shepherd didn't just rescue us from the mouth of the lion. He pulled us from the jaws of death because he is just and the justifier of the ungodly. And on the ground of this good news, we do justice. There is no more powerful motivation, no stronger reason, no greater drive for justice than God's love for us in the gospel. Could you imagine where we would be if God had not been just and the justifier of the ungodly? If he hadn't looked on his royal image bearers and committed to do us good, even when we didn't deserve it, even when we couldn't earn it, even when there was nothing good to be found in us except his original royal stamp, even though the image was defaced, it was not erased, and God looked after us and sent his son to be just and the justifier of the ungodly. May it never be the case that those who have been justified by faith would be found to be indifferent to justice. May it never be the case that those who know they will stand before God and be declared righteous would fail to do the work of righteousness right now right here with our neighbors. And even if there is no other group on the planet that remembers, the church must remember that true justice will never be reserved for just us. May it be true of our church and true of the American church that we will recover a reputation for doing justice. This is the heritage of the church, church historic and the church global. And we have departed in many ways and on various occasions from that holy reputation. But let us pray that it can be recovered. And let us begin with lament. The work of lament is never over so long as there is lamentable evil in this world. But let us not be stuck in the lament. Let the lament lead us to repent, to search our lives, to search our community, to identify the places where we are out of accord with the scriptures, out of accord with the heart of God. And let us 
pray that He grants us repentance and let us turn our hearts back to the Lord. Even if it costs us, even if our reputation is, is maligned because people are stuck in their partisan party lines or, or people are determined to hold on to their status quo and hold on to their privileges and you are stepping out of a line. You are getting out of alignment. You're offending your tribe. Let us pray that God would grant us the repentance that leads us to have courage to be fearlessly committed to doing what is good and being faithful to the true and seeking to, to cultivate the beautiful in this world. There is personal justice that each of us has an opportunity to pursue right now with our immediate neighbors, to meet needs, to identify things that are hampering the flourishing of our neighbors, but there's also social good as we participate as citizens of this American society, that we need to be a part of lifting our voices against all evil that we see and using our voices and using our opportunities, using everything at our disposal to see the evils of this world, the evils of this culture, the evil of, of, of systems, because evil people can create evil systems that work evilly against royal image bearers. And for us to be the kind of people that has vision, that has sight, that longs to see, and when we see, longs to act and will not quit until we see that reputation recovered and our neighbors restored as much as it is possible right now in this tension that we live in. We're supposed to be the foretaste of a glorious and just future. May God make this true of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have called us in love to be your people, that you have bestowed upon us royal dignity. You have bestowed upon us such love, such value. And we are grateful for that, Lord, but we ask that you would help us to do the same for our neighbors. We don't give them dignity that's already theirs by divine granting. But we ask that you would help us to recognize it. And we pray that you would help us to connect the dots on what it means for our neighbors to have royal dignity and to not settle for unjust circumstances for our neighbors because they are divine image bearers. And to not settle for unjust circumstances for our neighbors because of the way that you move toward us. This movement for justice in God's economy is grounded in redemption and help us to never separate it from that redemption. I pray that you would help us to see what it looks like to exercise biblical justice as we continue through this series. And I pray, Lord, that we would not get stuck in analysis paralysis, but that we would do the next right and good thing because your spirit is at work in us and we have a mind to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So Lord, would you do this work in our church? Would you do this work in our hearts? Would you bless us as your people to bear witness to who you are through the way we do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with you? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.